Welcome to Princess and the Pea podcast, the show that supports neurodivergent women and gender diverse folk, exploring our autistic and ADHD lives and how we can better navigate living in a neurotypical world that's not set up to fully support us yet. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHDer, and welcome to our very first episode. I'll be talking about why I decided to start this podcast and what my hopes are for it. I also have a listener question of the week for you at the end, so stick around for that. Before we kick off, I just wanted to add a quick content warning for little ears. This podcast will be discussing mental health issues and serious adult business. So chuck on your headphones and grab a cup of tea. And as Bluey likes to say, let's do this. This podcast is all about sharing information and having curious minds which are hungry to learn how we can function better, reduce stress and self-advocate as we go about our everyday lives. I've got a great lineup of guests this season from neurodiversity employment experts, a hilarious neurodivergent author and a handful of incredible neurodivergent humans sharing their lived experience on late diagnosis, parenthood and more. So, let's start with the name, Princess and the Pea. I'm sure you would have heard of the fairy tale about a young woman whose royal ancestry is established by a test of her sensitivity. In The Princess and the Pea by Hans Christian Andersen, a prince searches far and wide for a real princess to no avail. When one shows up unexpectedly at the door, the queen doubts her position and tests her by putting a pea under 20 mattresses and 20 blankets for her to sleep on to see if she is sensitive enough to be of true royal blood. In a literal interpretation, only a real princess would be so delicate that she would notice a small pea under all those layers. This satisfied my young self into believing that my sensitivity was a good thing, and obviously I wanted to be a princess. I was a very girly girl. However, figuratively speaking, the pea is a symbol of our truest selves. Despite the layers of the socially acceptable, the princess passes the test because she feels so intensely. She cares and is authentic. She's not afraid to face up to her own issues and discomforts. Either way, this story speaks to my soul. My parents used to affectionately call me the princess and the pea as a child because I was so sensitive to the world. They wanted me to see the beauty in my sensitivity and ignore the negative messages society tells us about sensitivity being a weakness or vulnerability. Vulnerability is true strength. And to be sensitive is to feel deeply. My parents always encouraged me to be proud of my big heart and big feelings. I wish I could say the same about the world. This fairy tale warns about the danger of jumping to conclusions without all the facts. And I think this nicely sums up what people do to us neurodivergent folk. They judge us too quickly and without the full picture. We even do this to ourselves sometimes. To me now. The P represents my diagnosis. As an autistic ADHDer, I lived 28 years of my life not knowing why it was so much more difficult than it should be, far more than others found it to be. Finding out about my neurodivergent brain was like finally understanding what was making everything so difficult. I could finally see the P, aka the diagnosis, that had been invisible for so long. 
and seeing it has only empowered me to understand it and work with it instead of wasting my energy fighting it and hiding it. Enough metaphor for you? I don't know, I'm digging it. It's not that the P is good or bad. It's that it simply exists and knowing this helps me to figure out how to embrace it and to see the benefits of it. Instead of simply focusing on the pain and discomfort, I can now also focus on the strength and uniqueness that having this P gives me. Okay, I'll drop the P thing. (laughs) Basically, knowledge is power and there's nothing wrong with being sensitive, neurodivergent, basically anything. I'm all for self-compassion and radical acceptance. I spent so much of my life feeling deep shame about my differences and now I'm trying to undo that and learn to appreciate and even utilize those differences. No matter how much my parents wanted me to see the beauty in my sensitivity, the messages the world sent me were far louder and I felt relentless shame, rejection and embarrassment for it. Being autistic or an adhd is not a superpower, nor is it a disease or illness to be cured. Like all human traits and characteristics, being autistic and an adhd comes with many strengths and many challenges. Unfortunately, the world still primarily focuses on the challenges, and I think it's important to acknowledge and highlight both, especially for our mental health, self-worth, and identity. I'm about to get real geeky, which I love doing. So if history bores you, check out the show notes for timestamps to skip ahead. I want to talk about the neurodiversity movement, as it's pretty commonly known in autistic circles, but I don't want to assume knowledge, and I would have loved to hear this when I was first diagnosed or suspected my own neurodivergence. Also, I'm very passionate about neurodiversity affirming healthcare and neurodiversity inclusive work. So understanding what this is based on is important for everyone, in my opinion. The movement started when autistic individuals began meeting and raising consciousness online in the 90s. Many were tired of being represented as tragic deviations from supposedly normal functioning, and they were also often traumatized by ensuing attempts to treat or cure their autism. Eventually, as a new way to challenge how we think about normality, they began to talk about whether the principle that increased biodiversity is necessary for a robust ecosystem also applied to neurocognitive diversity within species. Just as we value, see beauty in, and try to conserve biodiversity, why not think about neurocognitive diversity in the same way? Based on this, Judy Singer, a member of these communities, and at the time, a sociology student, coined the term neurodiversity and called for a politics of neurological diversity in her 1998 thesis. This became a founding text for the movement, which rallied around both Singer's concept as well as existing themes from disability studies. The term neurodiversity paradigm was proposed a bit later, in 2012, by autistic scholar Nick Walker. By then, the ideas initially developed by Singer were increasingly being adopted by individuals with other diagnoses, such as bipolar, dyspraxia, and ADHD. Walker was interested in the philosophical implications of this broader application and proposed a distinction between the pathology paradigm, which she took to be dominant and to rest on a relatively restricted concept of neurological, cognitive, and developmental normality, and the emerging neurodiversity paradigm. 
which begins from the acknowledgement that neurological diversity is natural and beneficial for the cognitive and cultural richness of the human species. Fascinating, right? On this paradigm, instead of being labelled medically normal or abnormal, those who are more enabled in a given society are considered more neurotypical, while those who diverge further from the functional norms are more neurodivergent. Walker argued that developing and cultivating such a paradigm shift to then be adopted for research, policy and practice would be necessary for the long-term emancipation and well-being of neurodivergent individuals. And I couldn't agree more from my own lived experience. Although Walker's chapter was relatively brief, it became highly influential within the movement and another one of the seminal texts of the neurodiversity theory. Advocates emphasize that this cultural paradigm shift follows the change we have seen regarding the LGBTQI community, away from pathologization and toward pride, acceptance and inclusion. The neurodiversity movement is also part of the broader disability rights and justice movement. With neurodiversity, while there's still a long way to go, we are already seeing neurodiversity paradigm vocabularies being used in the media and a shift to disability rights-based practices for neurodivergent individuals in schools, healthcare and workplaces. Honestly, I could talk about this stuff all day. But back to why we're here and who you're even listening to. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Annie and I'm known as Neurodivergent Millennial or at nd.millennial on Instagram. I started publicly speaking about my lived experience as a neurodivergent woman with a history of complex mental health a few months ago. I'm a lawyer, wife to a neurodivergent man, and mum of a beautiful little toddler who is probably neurodivergent. I have a flashy resume that makes me sound mega fancy, but it doesn't show you all the struggles and hurdles life has thrown my way. Like 70% of autistic women, I've experienced sexual and physical violence, both in my early 20s. Like many neurodivergent humans, I faced discrimination and ridicule for my differences at school and in the workforce. And like 80% of autistic women, I wasn't diagnosed until well after I left school. And finally, like many neurodivergent individuals, I have experienced poor mental health, mostly due to not knowing I was neurodivergent and hence not having adequate supports. These days, outside of my part-time day job and mumming, I consult multiple national organizations on neurodiversity-affirming healthcare. I write articles on disability inclusion. I founded and moderate two Facebook groups for neurodivergent women and mums in Australia. And I speak at national conferences and on other great podcasts about my lived experience as a late-diagnosed autistic ADHD woman and mum. I was diagnosed a few years ago after spending most of my 20s in and out of doctor's offices. I took my time coming to terms with what these labels meant and reprocessing basically my whole existence in a new and much brighter light. After two years of seeing wonderful neurodiversity affirming therapists, I hit a point where I realized I needed more. More information, more answers, more tools in my belt. So I started attending conferences and webinars all around the world. The best thing about COVID for me has been the accessibility it has provided and the resources that would previously be out of reach, both location-wise and financially. I extended my reading repertoire to anything and everything to do with autism, ADHD, twice exceptionality, demand avoidance, sensory issues, chronic illness, eating disorders, and more. 
I quickly discovered that the issues of information silos I found in therapy were more broadly still present. So much on ADHD doesn't begin to cover the co-occurrence and interaction with autism. So much of eating disorder research barely acknowledges neurodivergence, let alone how to support us in treatment, even though we make up 30 to 35 percent of Australians with eating disorders. Here I was having all these overlapping challenges that are not uncommon in our community, and there was so little information and support out there for the complexity that is living with multiple differences, disabilities, and divergences. On top of being an autistic ADHDer, I have also lived with an eating disorder for two decades. I've had a lifetime of physical injuries and problems that I found out was actually hypermobile L.S. Danlos syndrome. I've got PCOS, lived with chronic pain for the last seven years. I'm dyslexic. I have dyspraxia, sensory processing differences, demand avoidance. You get the idea. It was so hard to find much information on the overlap of these conditions, let alone health professionals that could understand and support them simultaneously. Anyway, that's why I'm here, to get these conversations going and to give you, and myself of course, access to some of the incredible humans who are having to navigate this complex journey and forge their own paths ahead too. Why should we all be trying to work this out on our own when we have thousands of incredible neurodivergent humans that can help us? Each episode, I'll be answering a question of the week at the end, and some questions might even be turned into entire episodes. So head over to the Instagram page at princessinthep.pod and DM us a question for your chance to have it included in the podcast. Patreon questions will be prioritized, so if you definitely want answers, then pop on over there. Links in show notes. Our first listener question comes from Adula, who wants to know how she can better support her autistic mamas. I love this question. And first of all, it's so great to even be asking this question. As we all know, the old but valid saying, if you've met one autistic, you've met one autistic, is so true. What this means is that although we have similar underlying traits, the expression of those traits and the amount in which they affect us differs widely. I'd start by asking the autistic mama how you can support her neurodivergence in labor and postpartum. She doesn't have to tell you everything, but maybe she already knows a few ways she thinks she could be more supported. For me personally, it was having someone around who knew what helped me to relax and who could communicate for me when I possibly couldn't. So this looks like meeting my sensory needs, like dimming lights or wearing sunglasses in theater if allowed. It means having noise-canceling headphones or earplugs on hand and at the ready, and don't forget to charge them. It also means having a person, partner, or doula protect me from unwelcome physical contact. This means knowing if I want to be touched or if touching makes things worse. It means making sure doctors and midwives always ask permission and explain exactly what they plan to do before they do it. It also means being open to the idea of plans changing. Maybe early on you were all for a drug-free vaginal delivery, but complications happened and anxiety peaked. And now you've changed your mind and maybe you want an epidural or even a C-section. I think being a supportive midwife or doula means allowing space and removing judgment of these things. And I know most of them do. I only mention this because I see such a huge divide in the birth profession between doctors who are heavily intervention focused and midwives and doulas who tend to be more on the anti-intervention 
natural bandwagon. Both sides have valid reasons and exist for a good purpose. But at the end of the day, it's about each individual's preference and everyone needs to respect and prioritize that as much as possible. I was very blessed to have the most supportive midwife and student midwife on my team. And although I started my journey with hypnobirthing and hoped for a vaginal delivery, complications did arise and ultimately I didn't have faith that I would have a non-traumatic birth given the obstetrician that I saw at my 20-week appointment was so dismissive of my birth preferences. If they didn't listen to me then, when I was very capable of speaking and advocating for myself, what chance did I have when I was in pain and potentially unable to speak in labour? Luckily, the obstetrician I ended up with was much more mental health aware and compassionate than the dismissive doctor I spoke to at my 20-week appointment. I had a peaceful and calm birth, even in an operating theatre. But I have far more of that on another episode, so stay tuned. Well, that's it. Episode one is done. Don't forget to head over to our socials and connect. Thanks for listening, and I'm excited for us to go on this journey together. Over and out.